And that's honestly why I named it Decade, because I was going to try to imply we're going to take decades off your learning curve. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 90 of No Putts Given. I'm Miranda. I've got Harry, Tony, and Chris here with me, as well as special guest Scott Fawcett. Welcome, everybody. How are we doing? Hey. Oh, hey. wonderful. What do you have, Chris? I got my El Cholito. Uh, you bring this out every episode. <laughs> no, no one cares like, anymore. <laughs> it's been like five or six episodes, and I care deeply. And we still don't have a chili cheese burrito. Because so. I still don't have a chili cheese burrito. Oh my God. Mark! Anyway. <laughs> so welcome to the chaos. Uh, we're glad to have you here. For those of you that don't know, Scott uh, founded Decades Golf, which, Scott, why don't you explain what that is? You're going to do a better job than I am. Oh, maybe. We'll see. Decade is, it's it's an acronym. And honestly, it's kind of funny. I actually did when I created it, I intentionally was trying to create a word that would become synonymous with course management. So what decade really is, is I'm kind of a math nerd, obviously played professional golf way back in the day. And I, when the strokes gain statistics started coming out back in 2013, I had already been thinking along the lines of golf is more of a poker game, just from having played a lot of poker in the early 2000s. And I just realized that I could take your shot pattern statistics from launch monitors and then strokes gain statistics and kind of combine them together like a Reese's peanut butter cup and hopefully solve course management. And I, I did that. And then uh, the week before the Texas amateur, I was going to play in it myself. And I got a quarter zone shot in my right arm, which the guy paralyzed my right arm. Conveniently, it came back. Luckily oh, for me, <laughs> I got a reaction. Yeah. Good Lord. He, he pulled the, the needle out of my arm and my arm just curled up into a ball. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I can't move my arm. And he goes, could you after the shot at all? I'm like, well, you just gave it to me. Is that important? And <laughs> and about two days later, I was cooking oh, and my sure. arm just okay. fell down and it came back to life. It was the, the craziest thing ever. Um, yeah. That, I've never heard of such a thing. That's it. Sounds it sounds like you. Let's face it. You took a Viagra pill, didn't you? Let's, it was Viagra for the arm. Pill. It was <laughs> just there for two days. <laughs> I don't think, think Harry knows how things work. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest having it done, but it was one of the spookier feelings of my life when it came back to life. Like I literally was having to peel my arm down and sit on it. Otherwise, my arm would just be up here by my elbow or by my shoulder. Anyways, that's so weird. Anyways, the guy told me, you know, hey, you probably shouldn't play any golf for uh, a little while this year while that he's like, whatever happened in there kind of fixes itself. And Will Zalatoris at the time was just a, uh, a young junior golfer at my home course. Obviously, uh, I don't have to explain who Will is anymore, but I reached out to him and just told him, you know, I did some a bunch of stuff in math for course management. And, you know, at the time he was 3300 in the world. But the kid, honestly, he probably hit the ball as good or better then than he does now as a, as a high school kid. It was really amazing. And I'd always wondered why he didn't do better. And it's, it's actually one of these paradoxical things where he hit it so good that he felt like he could really play far more aggressive than obviously you should. And so I just told him, you know, I can't play next week in the state am, but let me caddy for you. And I promise you, you'll win. And sure enough, he won by three. Then luckily the next week he qualified for the U S junior. And luckily it was here in Texas. I would not have gone to New Jersey or wherever. And it was, you know, just a couple hours from my house. So I told my wife at the time that I'll go down there and caddy for this kid. And, uh, and if he just does what I tell him to do, he's got a great shot at winning it. And he won there. And then to be honest, he almost won the U S uh, amateur that summer also. Hmm. Conveniently SMU's in Dallas and Jason Enlow, the coach at the time. And I've known each other since junior golf. And he told me, he's like, dude, Bryson Deschamaux plays so aggressively. You know, is there any way you can teach this indoors to him because it had to be indoors. So I wouldn't be considered a third paid coach by the NCAA. Interesting. And so he's the next guy that I worked with. 
And then next thing you know, apparently I'm a strategist. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's been kind of comical, but what I, I really say is that a lot of what I teach so well is because I was so bad at it when I was playing professionally in my twenties. I, I really do believe I was kind of like a Zalatoris where I hit the ball really well and struggled with putting. So as a result, you wind up trying to force a lot of stuff with your long game instead of just sitting back and waiting for it to happen. So you know, I've, I've owned an electricity company here in Texas for 20 years now. And so it really has just been a bit of a side project for a, a number of years. And over the last, uh, I don't know, about two years, really, I, I couldn't believe how many people were buying the Decade app and shooting 85 and entering all 85 shots in our GPS d- database. But we all know how much uh, when you love golf, you'll do anything to get better. And so then I finally realized I needed to create a, a product really tailored for them, which is what we did last year with Decade Foundations. And then it's just become this thing where I'm trying to get away from my electricity company as much as possible because it is just more fun, obviously, getting in the uh, the golf world. And now with what's gone on in the last four months with Zalatoris and Stuart Sink and Garrick Higo and Sam Burns, like it's just been pretty, uh, pretty insane. So Decade said- is a math-based course management system. And there's the, the history. <laughs> So you said it's an acronym, right? What does decade stand for? Decade is D is in distance. E is expectation. C is correct target. And I'll admit, I kind of finagled that one a little bit for uh, to make the acronym work. Still good. Still good. <laughs> it works. A, analyze, which represents the, the green side surrounding hazards, the weather conditions and the, the, the course conditions. And then D, discipline, which is what I say all the time, is probably the, uh, the hardest part of decade. And then E is execute, which is then when we start talking about your pre-shot routine and, and that part of the game. So, You said it was based on Mark Brody's strokes gained metric, mm-hmm. correct? How, how do they correlate and how do you use strokes gained? And for any of our readers uh, or listeners who don't know what strokes gained is, we're going to link an article where we explained it just recently. Yeah, I mean, I can explain that strokes gained literally in 30 seconds anyways. That an eight-foot putt on the PGA Tour is 50-50. So, you know, it's like a coin flip. If you obviously can't hit a putt one and a half times. So if you make an eight foot putt, you have moved the ball one and a half strokes closer to the hole and one stroke, you in essence gain a half a stroke. If you two putt it, you move it one and a half strokes closer to the hole and two strokes, you in essence lose a half a stroke. You then can take it all the way out to every yard in the fairway, a hundred yards in the fairway. It takes PGA tour players an average of 2.8 strokes to hole out. So without getting two numbers deep, but if you take it from a hundred and you hit it to eight feet, you've moved it from 2.8 strokes to 1.5 strokes. You've moved it 1.3 strokes closer to the hole in one stroke. So you in essence gain 0.3 shots and they've released strokes gain putting really back in like 2010 or 11. It had to be at least 2011 because I wrote a thread on an online poker forum called two plus two that was just titled is driver show putt for dough really true. And I used some pretty shaky math because we didn't have all of the data at the time, but I was just using the world rankings and, and money list finishes and FedEx cup finishes. And then looking at who does the best. And it was just quite obvious that it wasn't the best voters. I just started realizing that I could combine all of these data sets. And Chris Como and I met actually playing in an underground illegal poker game here in Dallas back in 2004. <laughs> and so I started realizing that I could take all of his track man data from his players my track man data and create in essence a, a generic shot pattern. So just again, the most mathy word I'll use this whole day is standard deviation, which is a sense, just a, a measure of variance could create a generic shot pattern. How big is it? And then overlay the strokes gain putting statistics. And 
basically optimize target selection from there. I did have to kind of guess at what I thought up and down rates were from different areas, which at, when I went back and double checked everything after they released the entire stroke chain database in 2014, I was within 0.05 shots on all of my guesses. So it, it really works just perfectly where if you know how many strokes it takes from a certain starting point, and then you have what, what I like to call is like a shotgun shot pattern. Uh, you don't really know where any particular shot is going. You then start to just use a little bit of programming in Excel. It's just basic expectation math. And, and then you can just find out the optimal target essentially. Okay, so can you put it into terms that, or and Harry, you might be able to help with this because you've been using the Decade system. If I am a golfer and I download the Decade app, how does all of that math translate to me? How does it make me a better golfer? And like I said, Harry, chime in on this one because you're using it. Well, since I just started using Decade, it just, it took all of the emotion out of the game for me. So if I was like, I feel like I need to press here. I need to go after this par five and two and go out the pin just so I can get myself back on track. And after looking at the percentages of, all right, well, it's going to be like a 15% chance I actually pull this shot off. But if I lay it up into an area where I know my short game is good or in an area where my numbers are decent for my own game, I'm going to get up and down a good, like maybe 60% of the time. So you know, what's the, what's the higher numbers percentage here, 60 or 15. Um, so I, I obviously play the percentages a lot more than I would just emotions, um, which is the biggest thing for me. That really is exactly what you're talking about. If you would have asked me back in 2015, I would have told you I'm the smartest math guy on the planet. I'm a genius. Yay me. It's all the math. And now seven years removed, I'm like, oh, it's all emotional control. It really is. It's Decade is a course management and statistics portal, but it's really just a, a therapist more than anything for, <laughs> for all of us. Cause we're, I don't know if you've noticed, but golf tends to attract a lot of type a uh, obsessive mm. consultive per perfectionist and golf is the worst sport possible. You couldn't design a worse sport for a perfectionist than golf. Oh. And so it really just helps remove that emotion. I mean, Zalatoris, after he won the Texas Amateur back in 2014, he sent me a text afterwards that just said, you know, I'll never know how to repay you or thank you. You've given me 25 years of experience in four days. And that's honestly why I named it Decade, because I, I was going to try to imply we're going to take decades off your learning curve. So, you know, to Miranda's question of, you know, what is it? The traditional playing lesson advice, it's really full of holes because golf is the only sport in the world that's not played on a uniform field of competition. If I was playing tennis last night and I said, well, I served it, I rushed the net, my opponent returned it, he stayed back at the baseline, you pretty much know what was going on there. But if I tell you that I was 147 on one, should I aim at the flag or not? You're like, well, I'm going to need to know a little bit more than that. Because again, golf is just played on, on non-uniform courses. Number 18 at St. Andrews holds only like 360 or 70 and the green is 52 yards wide. Number 10 at Pebble Beach is 500 yards from the, the U.S. Open tees, and the green is 17 yards wide, and there's an ocean on the right-hand side. Like, middle of the green is completely different advice mm -hmm. on those two holes, and that's really where the traditional playing lesson advice talks about, let's go more towards the middle of the green here, or let's get more aggressive in this situation, and it really just doesn't work that way. So with Decade, everything, your target selection starts from working off of the side of the green, the edge of the green that the hole is located closest to. Because really the most important thing in determining the size of your shot pattern, I mean, obviously aside from your skill level, is how long is the shot. The shorter the shot, the smaller the shot pattern. 
So the closer to the edge of the green that, you know, the, the AKA, the more aggressive we can get on those shorter shots. And then the next thing you need to consider is, again, is there an ocean on the left or is it all just fairway run up? And that's, again, the, the analyzed part where you start really tightening, the, tightening in these targets based on the surrounding hazards. And again, that's where, you know, Twitter, you may have noticed is frustrating sometimes, but <laughs> my, my haters on Twitter are just like, well, it can't do this. I'm like, apparently you've never attended the seminar because it can and it does. And then the one few things that they start talking about, well, all these slopes and ridges are different and shot patterns are simply huge. All shot patterns are huge relative to any slope on any green. And as a result, yeah. if you start trying to take those into account, you're just putting a different part of your shot pattern on the ridge and you're going to be missing more greens and regulation in order to take that into account. And, you know, I have to go into it with the, the general idea of most golf courses aren't designed completely ignorantly. And so the slopes aren't 42 feet tall. Like, yeah, if there's a 42 foot tall ridge in the middle of the green, I'd probably take that into account. That's not the way <laughs> courses are designed. Right. And so as a result, they're just really most of the tricks of the trade of, of architects, they're really just kind of irrelevant. Actually, once you understand, you know, the math and satellites of the game. Tony, my golf spy is very datacratic. So we're, for the most part, liking what we hear Scott saying. Do you think that golf can be whittled down to a game of numbers and simple math? It's funny. I, as, as we continue to evolve our testing methodology of even using robots to a degree, and this, there's a little bit of conflict in what I'm about to say, but... Isn't there usually? <laughs> right, you're right, but like... <laughs> Almost nothing in golf is is statistically reliable in in terms of like how you lay it out. But man, there are probabilities everywhere. And so when I first saw Decade and kind of looked into it, and and again we'd already been by the time I, I saw it for the first time, ten years into most wanted testing, and you know since since probably the second year, part of what I do kind of behind the scenes is generate elliptical dispersion patterns and you know draw circles in Excel. Doing that and then looking at what Scott's done, I'm like, man, this this seems almost obvious. And yet <laughs> like there's there's this amazing it like, it's like, hey, yeah. look, if I kind of have this pattern and I know what this pattern is and I just kind of slide it over what is essentially the meaty part of any hole, then that's probably the best approach. And so having having kind of seen that and understanding it at that level, like what what baffles me is is just the pushback <laughs> that there is on this. It's like if like how how do you not see this? This is just like it is. It's it's just math. <laughs> well, I would say the pushback that they get from it is how do I know my own dispersion patterns without a launch monitor? Well, you can you could do it if say you have an empty range. And you could go through your bag and just say, all right, I, I'll hit 10 shots here. And I think that that's pretty representative of my shot pattern. Because sometimes, like Scott, you say that every course is like 70 yards wide for the most part on the fairway, which I did my own mapping <laughs> and it was just, it, I was laughing in my own head. It's spooky, it's, isn't it? It's so spooky. And in every course, if you're hitting it in around 300, if that is your number, um, it was like 70 yards wide, if not 65. Yes, there are some holes that you they're they're only like forty yards wide, um, and you have to go over obstacles. But you just lay back to a number where you then go for the next probability in. But I think a lot of people would say, "How do I know my own dispersion pattern on every single club?" Is probably their only qualm. <laughs> the real key to that, and and we'll see if I can explain this very well with words. I'm more of a math guy, and I'm struggling with COVID brain fog. So we'll see how this goes. But number four at Stanford's golf course is a 168 yard par three. There's a, a ravine all along the right-hand side. 
and the front finger of the green is 17 yards wide and there's a big deep bunker on the left. And people all the time, specifically amateurs, are like, I need to, to play more conservatively than a tour player. Like, how can you give me the same advice as them? And that's a perfect example of a hole. Again, there's a lake on the right. There's a bunker on the left. If I make that amateur more conservative with the larger shot pattern, so a tour player shot pattern is going to be hopefully mostly on the green and maybe 25 or 30% at that length is going to be in the left-hand bunker. If I make an amateur more conservative just because of their larger shot pattern, they're going to actually hit balls left of the bunker and for sure a ton of balls in the bunker. And if they hit it left of the bunker, they're typically going to dump that in the bunker and then put that next one into the ravine. And it sounds like a joke, but the math literally does back up. If you're going to hit it in the water, eventually it needs to be as quickly as possible. (laughs) I mean, it really, yeah, you know, and at the end of the day, really all decisions in life are math based. And I mean, literally every single one of them, you are weighing some sort of odds in your head, whether you realize it or not, even something as pedantic as crossing the street, you know, depending on how much of a hurry you're in, if it's not a hundred percent, hopefully you're going to wait a little bit, but if you're, Hey, I got to get going or there's a tiger chasing me, maybe you'll drop that down to 90% or something like that, whether or not a car is going to hit you, but you really are juggling some math in your head again, whether you realize it or not. And, what you're talking about there with the 70 yard wide kind of shot pattern at, at 300 yards for good players. I just say it all the time. It's like, what's the alternative dropping back to three wood. Well, now you're making a hundred percent of your second shots longer, you know, 30, 40 yards longer in order to save maybe three to 5% of shots of going in the, in, into some sort of a hazard or something. And again, I don't want to make it that simple because it really is a lot of, you know, not math that goes into it, but just following this decision tree. But it is just amazing how formulaic all golf courses, there's a lot of bad golf courses out there, but all good courses really follow this formula pretty closely. I mean, again, aesthetically, they're going to look vastly different, but you're just not going to have a 480 yard par four with 50 yards between penalty stroke hazards. And if you guys have listeners in Europe right now, I know they're going, oh yeah, you do. You do get a lot of crazy stuff over there because (laughs) the courses are older, but What's the alternative? Three wood is not going to accomplish anything for you. Well, it brings in, it could bring in more trouble. Like if I lay back into bringing, bringing it into a bunker, fairway bunker, and then there's a probability on hitting out of there and getting on the green. And then if you come back more of a two iron, now you're hitting a longer one and it's probability is higher. Yeah. You can't even get home in two. (laughs) It's, it's such a domino effect. Well, Scott, it seems like the decade golf system works well enough that you were banned from giving seminars by the NCAA to colleges and universities, correct? I was, yes. Wow. How's that feel? What's it like to have a ban by the NCAA? Well, I got to be honest with you. So again, I've, I own an electricity company, which is technically definitely back in 2015 was definitely my day job. And I called them originally and they said, as long as you do everything indoors, you're fine. And they, they would consider me a mental coach. Well, Deschambeau goes and wins the NCAA championship. And during his presser, they're asking and he's like, you know, Scott, He's helped save me at least a shot around. And they called me and they're like, Deshambo referred to you during his press conference saying that you taught him golf. You did everything indoors. I'm like, sure did. But doesn't everybody have their own sort of personal coaches? Like, don't football players have their strength and conditioning coaches that they go and see at home? Don't basketball players have their free throw shooting coaches? Yeah, but that's that's not amateur. The university can't bring in a third paid coach. And technically what they're trying to do is not let these NFL offensive coordinators charge a hundred thousand dollars and come in and give clinics. And so I really was just a scapegoat more than anything else in a non-rev sport where they're like, okay, 
we got to ban somebody. May as well be this jerk. <laughs> but so after after he won the U.S. Amateur, and even Joe Buck said my name on TV, and at mm. that time I had done I had planned four seminars, and I went and gave them at Duke, Clemson, Wake Forest, and then a junior seminar. My seminar is four hours long, like it's it's a long seminar. And I did that four straight days and I called my wife again then at the time and said, I can't do this. And I'd already booked like 20 other schools for that fall. And so the NCAA called me the next week and they're like, okay, we really need to understand exactly what you're doing because DeChambeau referred to you again. So did Joe Buck. And at that point, I wanted to get banned. I'm like, well, I went and bought, went and bought a drone and I filmed a whole bunch of golf stuff. And I mean, I guess you could say I'm teaching golf. And I did not expect them when they banned me to, to the, the, literally the opinion the guy wrote in the email. He's like, Scott's seminar is an unfair competitive advantage. I'm like, wow, on the way out the door, you couldn't uh, couldn't ask for much more than that. That's a testimonial <laughs> if I've ever heard one. Yeah. <laughs> How many offers did you get from colleges and universities to come coach their golf team once you were banned as a as a seminar person? I actually have gotten a few offers and I'm like, <laughs> that is the last thing I, I don't uh, I don't do well with. Uh, with multiple people, I, I would not, uh, I would get myself. <laughs> Large crowds are no go. <laughs> Scott doesn't play well with others. He, uh... <laughs> I, I would get canceled in a hurry and fired. I mean, it would not, uh, it would not go well. Yeah. Um, hey, Tony, do you want to give us a call for mailbag? Mailbag! <laughs> that was pretty good. There we go. Yeah, that was a good a one this week. <laughs> okay. So this week, uh, we got a comment, William Kendall, uh, left the perfect question for this week's topic. He said, I love what you guys do. Question, what's the right level of analytics for an average golfer to track? It can get down to minutia, but that is probably too much for the weekend warriors. What should we be looking at and what should we save our exasperation from dealing with? Let's see, Scott, why don't we start with you? It's interesting because greens and regulation would have been my answer a couple of years ago. And I was talking with Mark Brody, who is the, the brilliant man that created the strokes gain statistics from Columbia and the Columbia University, not Columbia, the country. <laughs> and I said that to him one time when we were having lunch and he, and he was like, you know, really the greens and regulation doesn't tell you much because it is the most perfectly correlated to your scoring average. So making up a number, but if you tell me that you average 78, I can tell you, you average 62% of greens and regulation. And it's funny because perfectly correlated things actually aren't very useful as, as a statistic to drive anything because also, I always look for actionable advice. Like, I can't just tell you, go out and hit more greens. That's, that's well, not very... Th thanks. I'm going to go play. Thanks for that, Scott. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I hit every green eventually. I mean, <laughs> you know. Well, at least you don't pick up very often. Yeah, that's... <laughs> the, 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 what we track in the foundations, again, getting back to, I do agree that it can get kind of difficult to track very many statistics. And so we introduced the Tiger Five, which are the five things that Tiger tracked back in the late 90s, early 2000s when he was really dominating. And it's how many bogeys did you have on par fives? How many double bogeys did you have? How many three putts and how many bogeys from inside 150? And then his fifth one was blown easy saves, which for the Decade Foundations app, we've changed to uh, two chips. And it's just amazing because Tiger knew somehow intuitively that if he could keep those mistakes to six or fewer per tournament, he would win. And the actual number after Lou Stagner, my main chief data nerd, uh, went back and figured it out where the actual number for the players finishing first to fifth place on the PGA Tour is 6.4 of those per event. And Tiger knew if he could have six, he'd win. And it's just insane how hmm. spot on that was. But really, if you think about it, every round of golf that you finish and you think I should have shot lower, it's typically one of those five things. It's not I should have hit it further or hit it closer or made that 20 footer. It's I shouldn't have done one of those five dumb things. And it's just amazing how Tiger was out there 
just how many of those dumb things that I did. And, and critically, the winner averages one and a half of those around. Back to Harry and I trying to be less of lunatics. If the winner on the PGA Tour is averaging one and a half of those relatively stupid mistakes, Joe Blow at home, who shot 78, can't finish around a golf and say, well, I bogeyed that par five. I should have shot one lower. Like, no, yeah. that's kind of why you shot 78 or why that is your scoring average. You don't get mm. to just say, I, I shouldn't have done that or I won't do that next time. That's interesting. I like that one. Chris, how about you? What's the right level of analytics for an average golfer to track? Yeah, good question. I think, you know, I think a lot of it goes back to their own appetite for tracking certain things, right? Like there's some people that, you know, that's really a cumbersome thing for them to track anything more than their score on each hole. And there's some people that are, you know, much more quantitative and they want to, um, you know, they would track everything they possibly could. They get in the car on the way home and they're already jotting down stuff, et cetera. So I think there's a couple facets in here. One of it is kind of your own personal capacity to do that because if it's not within some of your nature, you're going to be constantly probably frustrated with doing um, a lot of those things. Secondly, I think, you know, for the, for the average golfer, I think it's, you know, start simple and then build it up a little bit as you go. So even if it is something like a perfectly correlated uh, item, like a greens and regulation, start tracking that at least you're tracking something. And then maybe you want to build from there with the point being that we're not tracking birdies, 300 yard drives, and, you know, wedge shots to inside 10 feet, right? It's it's much more about tracking the things that we know detract from a score as opposed to trying to force good things to happen that ultimately you can't really control. You know, and this gets into a kind of other rabbit holes that we could go into around what are some of the really key, super interesting facets or kind of tenets and beliefs of decade that kind of fly in the face of some conventional, I'm not even going to call it wisdom because it's not, but some conventional thinking that just gets passed down over and over because I guess it sounds good and people have <laughs> questioned it. <laughs> you know, I mean, those are typically the two reasons that bad information gets passed along is it, it passes somewhat of a smell test and nobody stops to challenge it. And, and Decade is full of those little nuggets. So I'll leave that as a teaser. All right. Tony, we have, of course, tested and reviewed different shot tracking apps like Arcos and ShotScope and, and similar things. And we say that golfers can get better using them. Do you think that that is a, a good level of, of expertise for average golfers to have to improve their game using things like that? So, yeah, let me let me first say I, I do love Arcos. I'm a longtime user. I know <laughs> I've seen some of Scott's tweets, not his favorite for sure. No, it's not true. I just think there's a few logical mistakes they make. And yeah, my main so, thing is you have to tidy up the data afterwards. I, I have no problem with Arcos. Yeah, and that and, and what I would say, and I, I agree with that point, right? It's like there is a frustration level. It's it's only as only useful if you're willing to manage it every step of the way to a degree. And likewise, I would say like it, it's really good in, in telling you sort of identifying weaknesses in your game. It tells you how far you hit everything. But I think kind of the crucial piece that's missing versus what Scott does is it Arcos doesn't effectively tell you where to aim. <laughs> you know, and that's when you think about it in terms of playing that's golf. That's kind of a big part of golf, right? That's a <laughs> yeah, critical, isn't that the whole point? <laughs> if you're really trying to sort of optimize your strategy and, and hit smart shots as much as you are trying to hit good shots, that's like that's kind of a key piece that's missing. So, you know, as much as I like it, I, I also I love what Scott said. Um, the only thing, you know, when you say, hey, you know, make fewer bogeys, keep track of, of where you're making doubles, for example, like 
obviously, yeah, I, I want to make fewer bogeys, but I'd still, you know, I need to identify the why there. And so I, I think maybe I need to kind of go on to the next step, right? Like for, for a lot of golfers, I think maybe the, the foundations, foundation stuff's probably, it, again, like Chris said, it depends on the guy. Foundation's probably awesome for a good percentage. It's sort of like, all right, what's your, where do you want to go for the next step? Well, ex exactly what Chris was saying earlier, where you start with tracking something, some greens, some putts, just start by tracking something, which is why with the foundations month one and two, I think it is, we just track those tiger five. I just want to build the habit. It takes like three minutes. Then we add in strokes gain putting. Then we add in penalty shots and then we add in the mental scorecard. So we've gone from no stats to three minutes to five minutes to seven minutes. Then when you jump to elite, it does. It takes about 15 minutes to enter a round of golf. I mean, it is what it is. If you want good analytics, right. it's going to take a little bit of time. I mean, there's not much you can do about it. The, the main key to me with any sort of stats is when somebody says, you know, I had a guy, a professional player just yesterday asked me to look at their stats. I'm like, okay, cool. And they're at 53% of the fairways. And, and he had said, I need to hit more fairways. I'm like, well, how far do you hit it? 53% might be great. Look at Dustin Johnson. If you're Zach Johnson, that's probably not very good. So you really have to look at combinations of categories, which again is what strokes gain does so well. So I, somebody on Twitter one time, I, I had talked about, you know, no one stat tells you anything in isolation very well. And the guy replied with, well, strokes gain approach is amazing. I'm like, that's not one stat. That's a bunch of stats boiled down into one data point. But that is not one statistic. And, and just to touch up what you're talking about, Arcos there, the, I, I really don't have any issue with Arcos. I think it's probably, it's pretty impressive actually how they track it with that. But I don't like the, what you had said actually was the, how far each club goes. In my opinion, you need to know how every far every club goes when you just hit it full on a range. And then you need to know how to, to, to take that information because to have, I've hit 57 irons in the last 20 rounds, I guess that'd be about right. And they averaged 174. Well, I flighted some, I hit some into the wind, I hit some downwind. Like, I do think that information, when you actually look deeply into it, is it's probably close to accurate. I mean, that's the question that mm -hmm. I had when I was at one of the seminars with Chris, actually, at the PGA show is, hey, when I'm say over here, it's all pretty much target golf for the most part in America, if you think about it. When you go over to Europe, it's it's more of hitting knockdown shots and doing all unless you're on the coast at like California where a wind blows for fun. <laughs> it's always n knocking shots down. You're trying to flight shots. You're trying to do all this. And when I ask that question, does it take into account? He says, yes, it takes it into account. But it can't. The, where I would love to see it is it's tracking ball speeds and your club head speed. And then once you get all that numbers, you can get a really good, accurate representation of all right, my seven iron goes this far at this ball speed. When I knock it down, it goes this this far. But you, you just, like like Scott said, everything kind of goes in, unless you top one and then it eliminates it because it's out your your variables, which, which happens from time to time. It just happens. Critically, people think, well, it'll just average out. That is not true. It, it does not just average out because into the wind, it impacts it. A track man study that a guy did one time, 184 yard six iron, uh, with just calm and no wind, that same shot into a 20 mile an hour wind only carries 143. So 41 yards shorter and 20 miles an hour downwind, it carries 207, which is only 23 yards more. So into yeah. the wind and downwind, it doesn't cancel well, his, each other his, out. A great no, 
No, it's almost twice as impactful, right? Yeah. Well, but but the other thing too is because nobody, you nobody, tour players included, nobody hits the ball as far as they think they do. <laughs> yes, they don't. <laughs> the problem with the using the averages is the downwind, excuse me, the end of the wind average impacts it more. So it just it really winds up. It, it makes the problem even worse. And and the average golfer doesn't want that kind of maintenance, right? If you talk about what's the perfect scenario, well, there, where there's, there's a button to say, hey, you know, headwind, tailwind, and and how much, and Absolutely. and another button for whether it was a full swing or a knockdown, or you know, I was behind a tree, so I had to hook the five iron and keep it low. There's there's just not that level of details. Yeah, yeah, and here we yeah. just keep on adding to the amount of time it takes, and you know, that's where it's funny because people are like, I want it to. I want those stats to take less than 10 minutes to enter. I'm like, <laughs> I wouldn't track any stats because yeah. it's just not going to be that quick. Harry, I want to give you a chance to chime in on this question. We'd call you probably an above average golfer, right? And you track your game really closely. Do you think the extent to which you track your game is distracting to average golfers that just want to play better with their buddies on the weekends? I mean, it all depends on what your end goal is. If you want to get better track stats it just is what it is you have to put the time in if you just want to go and drink beer and have shit talking with your buddies then don't even worry about it just shit talk to your friends but for me i rather track stats and i'm and i was tracking stats like how many greens do i hit in regulation like distance fairways but after actually looking at decade it made me think a little bit differently purely because the longer is better even if you're in the rough unless it's up to your face in rough you know you're not going to find it or whatever. Long, longer is better. I'm only a short guy, dude. So come on. <laughs> what are you, what are you, four it's foot one? It's probably up yeah. to your knees. It's probably up to your knees. <laughs> but longer is better off the tee. But when it comes to stats related, I do look at unforced errors. And I'm thinking, why did I do that? And does it happen sometimes in the same scenario? Do I need to hit a different shot? So for me, I'm, I'm at a different level of tracking stats. I, I track stats in a different way than I did when I, first, when I first started. I think that just simply understanding that post-analysis is important is, is a huge step in the right direction. I mean, again, I play a smart guy on the internet, but I look back at myself in my 20s, I'm like, my God, what a moron. <laughs> I mean, I kept on making the same mistake day after day after day with zero, zero effort of how to stop feeling like you've wasted shots each round. And, and I do think that it's just hilarious looking back at it. Cause again, I'm, you know, I won 10 times on the Hooters tour and every single tour, except for the ones you actually want to win on when I was younger. So I was good, <laughs> but I never came close to making it. And now that I'm 48 and I don't, don't play any golf at all. I'm almost as good from a handicap standpoint. I'm a plus five and I was a plus six back then. I literally am not a member of the country club. I do not play golf and I'm only a shot worse than I was when I was a full-time playing professional in my twenties. Like that makes zero sense. <laughs> or it makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, it's just how much better I think. I mean, again, I went out to, I played in Q school two years ago, kind of as a joke because I wanted to just play some rounds of golf. I, I flushed 5,400 down the toilet just as an experiment for fun. And I, I was 11 under for the seven rounds that I played. And, and I'm just like, I'm actually competing with these young kids because it's a total tortoise in the hair situation mm -hmm. here. And it was just hilarious to watch and just listen to it. But again, back to catting for Zalatoris, there were so many times that I would be listening to our competition and I'd be like, that's a dumb idea. That's <laughs> you have no chance. <laughs> that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And uh, there were, and again, like it was, it was one of the matches in the U S junior. And I'm just like, dude, look at him. He's starting to freak out. He's going to try to force something along the way, just 
stick to our plans. Trust me, this is going to work out. And it, it was on number 12, this par three. He hit in a, in a bunker and he proceeded to just dismantle the bunker. And Will was just, it was honestly like I had a crystal ball that entire summer because I could just see what was going to be coming from these junior golfers based on how they were acting and thinking. And I can say that because I was a thousand fold worse when I was that age. <laughs> and uh, it is, it's back to what Harry's talking about, just removing emotion. That is that is everything. I've got a, an announcer one time that's on TV that was saying, you know, I, I played better with emotion. I'm like, no, you played worse without emotion. You, you can't play better than you are. You just didn't perform. <laughs> I, <laughs> Carry the one two. of the interesting things <laughs> yeah. that when I'm watching golf now, when I'm watching golf, I hear the commentators say, oh, he's going to be aggressive here. And then after listening to your um, video, Scott, you could just think that, they don't really know what he's trying to do here. Like it was Tiger Woods at this time. And you said, well, Tiger Woods is playing to his spot every single time. And if he pulls it onto the pin, then so be it. It just is what it is because he's shot a pattern. But he was saying he's going to be aggressive here. And hearing the commentators change their tune based on what you've, what your theory is, Scott, is actually really impressive. And, and it's great that you're manipulating people from behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> I used to give him a pretty hard time. I actually feel bad. Look, I was in a really bad dark spot in my life back in 2015, 16, and 17. So I, I definitely gave people a harder time than I probably should. I didn't really care at the time. Filling four hours of dead air has to be really hard, but you really sure. have to consider. Yeah. Coming from a broadcaster, yes. It's got to be impossible. <laughs> and and so I, I, I cut them a lot more slack than I used to. But at the end of the day, they you don't know what the intention was on any given shot. And, you know, Cameron Champ has won now three times on the PGA Tour. He actually attended my seminar twice in college because I was the volunteer assistant at Texas A&M since that's where I went while he was in school there. And when he won his first event in Jackson, his target, you could hear his caddy, Kurt Kowalik, doing a great job of just playing him like a video game on 13, par three, 147. He said, are you committed to a target four yards left of this pin? And then he hits it. He stuffs it to like nine feet. Now it's just going off. What a great shot. Amazing. You just fire it right at the pin. I'm like, you literally could hear the caddy saying four yards left. <laughs> but then three holes later on 16, the pin is on the left side. There's a lake over there left. The pin was four or five yards on the left edge. Caddy again does the math, says five yards right of this pin. And Cameron again hits it five yards right of that target, which on 13 was really convenient because where that's where the hole was. This time it's not convenient because now he's hit it to 30 feet. And the announcer said, you see, that's just a little too conservative there. I'm like, it's the exact same shot <laughs> as the one he just hit on 13. It's just unfortunate it wasn't on the whole side of his target. And that's ultimately like what somebody said earlier, talking about Tiger saying, you know, he was asked on the air back in, in 2014 at the Hero. They said, you know, Tigers, you've gotten older. Do you play more aggressively or more conservatively? And Tiger's answer was, oh, I've played, always played aggressively 100%. And at the time, I'd already done a lot of work for him and Como with reverse analyzing Tiger's strategy. I looked at 20,000 of his shots by hand, and you would not classify his strategy as aggressive. And when he said that, I was like, wrong. But then he <laughs> finished the sentence, and he said, well, I'm very aggressive, but I'm aggressive to my spots. And so wherever I can put, would put my spot, which might be a little bit more on the conservative side, but I'm playing more aggressively to that. And I'm like, oh, my God. He's so good at this. He doesn't even understand the question. The question wasn't, are you playing aggressively to your spot? The question was, are you playing aggressively? Which means, are you firing at pins? Like mm -hmm. he's literally on such a different plane. He doesn't even understand the most basic question because I'm sure he's like, you mean people are dumb enough to just go out and fire at every single pin? Like <laughs> yeah, to him, that's, that's what makes sense, right? And I think 
that's the you I think you've even used the the phrase and correct me if I'm wrong but snake oil and and we tend to have a, a negative connotation with that right where it's like you know selling people something that's just uh you know might as well be a bag of dicks right Tony like <laughs> oh look here it is and I got that instead of what I was hoping for but the 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 concept like if you had a boil down decade into the most simple basic terms possible people would look at it and go well, no shit. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Why wouldn't I mean, kind of like what Tiger has learned over time, or you talk to anybody who's gotten to that level in their field or whatever, and and it's clear they do things differently than others. But to them, it is so blatantly obvious that that's the way to do something correctly. They don't even consider right the other options or realm of possibilities. Or yeah, I why would I possibly hit it there? When I know that my best percentage chance for making a par or whatever is over here, and they have this macro perspective, right? Whereas, you know, back to Harry's con you know, on the weekend golfer that wants to get better. Not, I'm convinced most weekend golfers don't actually want to get better at golf. They say they do, but they don't actually want. Like they like the theory. Like I love the theory of losing weight, but like, am I really committed <laughs> to it? Like I love the theory of it, but I'm not going to count calories and bullshit like that. Like no. So, point being. They don't really actually want to improve. If you did, you would look at that and say, okay, what's my macro perspective? Most golfers are micro perspective. It's this shot. It's that target. If I didn't hit it exactly there, it's, you know, it's either good or bad failure or success. And in decade asks you to have a more macro perspective on, and that's really what strokes gained are because all these little segments, right, add up over time. And it's not making one better decision. It's making that better decision a hundred times in a row. I mean, I think one of the key points that kind of came up to my mind as you were talking there is what Tiger says, I play aggressively to my spots. I do think the vast majority of veteran experienced, good players, they could probably go, if they went out and you just said, where should you aim this shot? Most of them would probably pick pretty good targets. They've played enough golf that they could do that. But the key is, is every PGA tour player that I work with that you've never heard of when we get to the spot, in my seminar, and I say, we got to play aggressive to our spots. I remember back when I was in my 20s playing, I would pick a good spot left of the pin, and then I would hope I push it by the pin. And they all <laughs> sit back and laugh when I say that. And they're like, oh, I do that seven times around. Yeah. And it probably sounds asinine to amateurs saying, you mean they pick a spot and then they don't try to hit it there? Like it sounds, it's so obviously stupid. It's mind boggling. And this Thank is you. what a guy like Colin Morikawa, which again, Colin attended my seminar in college at Cal, but his instructor, Rick Sessinghouse, had basically been teaching him. Again, I know I haven't, you know, great instructors have, have been teaching what I teach a long time. Now I have quantified and systematized it, but Rick Sessinghouse has been teaching Colin essentially this since he was a kid, which is where it just makes sense to Colin to go out, pick good targets, play aggressively to those spots, let variants come your way and hit the same shot over and over and over again. And, you know, your question of if you were doing boil down decade into a nutshell, I shouldn't do it because I'm hoping to sell a few apps out of this, but super <laughs> aggressive off the tee, moderately conservative into the green, get really good at lag putting. One of my favorite comments I get from people is, well, don't you have to be good at lag putting to be good at this? I'm like, no, you have to be good at lag putting, be good at golf. So <laughs> no, yes, but lag putting is just not that hard once you understand how to practice lag putting with speed drills instead of just randomly rolling balls all around and at the end of the day it really comes down to just being aggressive to your spots that is just what most people 
don't do. And that's really the reason I entered Q school two years ago is because, yeah, I played in the Texas AM and the US Mid AM that summer. And yes, they've got decently hard pins, but they're not like a PJ Tour pin where every pin is three or four yards from the edge of the green. I wanted to play a tournament where they were all just going to be stuffed on the corners. And I would see how hard it is to hit a six iron at the middle of the green and not sit there and kind of hope it leaks over to the right or to the left. Because the, the key to all of this is we're trying to get your range game onto the golf course as efficiently and effectively as possible. And you have never once hit a six iron on a driving range and thought, I hope I'm hit this seven yards right of my target. Not once has anyone done that. And then we do that seven to 10 times around on the course. So you're putting this wishy-washy non-committed swing on it hole after hole. And that is in my opinion, where all outlier shots come from stinging me here, kind of not really sure what you're trying to do with it. I'm just kind of hitting it that way and hoping ish. Yeah. They're ish shots where it's yeah. like, I'm aiming over here. I mean, right at the center of that tree. ish. <laughs> all right. I think that's actually yep. a really good place for us to wrap it up today. Guys, any final thoughts or questions for Scott before we, we head out? Yeah, I, I got a couple too. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> I have 17. So, this questions. is a two-part series. <laughs> so first question, what is the worst shot you've seen on the PGA Tour this year in terms of just pure decision-making? Well, the first He doesn't watch golf. Scott I know, doesn't intent. watch golf. You don't know intent. I know you don't <laughs> know intent. Neither do you, Tony. But you could speculate. <laughs> I, I will say I, I did... I did send Rick Sessinghouse a text when Colin tried to draw that shot on about number five or six in the final round of the British Open. He clearly was trying to draw an iron shot and he left it out to the right. I sent Rick a text just like, why do you think Colin would try to draw that shot? I didn't get a response, which makes me think he was thinking, I have no idea, man. <laughs> I, and then I even got a text from Sean Martin, the PGA Tour writer over at the Olympics. And he said, man, I just saw Colin try to draw another shot on a par three and he blew it straight right there too. So I mean, honestly, nothing comes to mind simply because I don't watch much golf. Oops. All right. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. First question was a dud. Now this isn't a two-part. <laughs> Second question. Angles? Angles. <laughs> Angle schmangles. Chase them. Well, and again, Mark Brody is light years smarter than me. I, I will say that, and I say this all the time, anytime that we disagree on anything mathematically, he's right in the math. I'm choosing a different interpretation of it because of my ability as a player. And he was on No Laying Ups podcast the other day. And I, luckily, I don't listen to anything they do. But <laughs> <laughs> all no putts given for that matter. <laughs> well, that's true, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where we are. But um, he, uh, the, Solly was just trying to lead him on, on so many questions, trying to get him to basically disagree and make the stuff that I talk about wrong. And he brought up angles. And Mark was like, no, you know, and he even mentioned, he's like, Scott Fawcett and Lou Stagner have done a great job with this angle stuff. And then he just kept going with, well, what if there's nothing right and there's just rough and the greens are firm. And so you've got this, a better angle. And well, Mark's like, oh, well, if yes, there, then yes, you can hunt an angle. And I just wanted to, I wish there was like a call-in button because I'm going to be like, just show me that hole. Show me the hole where there is 70 <laughs> yards of nothing to the right. And then there's this better avenue into the green. There's always going to eventually be a tree, a bunker, a lake, a house. There's going to be something over there. And really what you have to think of when you're thinking about angles, and we'll see how this one goes. <laughs> think of a Venn diagram where you've got these two overlapping circles. If you're trying to hunt an angle up the right, so you're aiming a little bit more to the right, 
the center of your shot pattern now is gaining that angle. The right side of your shot pattern is going to be the one that's going to eventually be in somebody's house or trouble. If I'm aiming at the middle of the fairway, the right side of my shot pattern is going to have that angle, period. And so those overlapping parts of the circle where you're intending to hit it are overlapping with the right side of your shot pattern when aiming at the middle. And I'm not saying you should or shouldn't aim at the middle, but the only reason you need to not be aiming at the middle for the most part is because of a penalty stroke hazard. That's you have to find your golf ball. And so you really have to just understand and trust that, especially off the tee shot patterns are 70 yards wide. If you hit it over 270 or 280, that's just, that's how big they are in, in play. And so you really have to just trust the variance within your shot pattern. We'll see how this one goes. Variants are randomness. I was on another podcast last week that Myron Scholes, who is a Nobel Prize winning economist, happened to be listening to. And he challenged my word. He sent me an email challenging my use of the word variance. I'm like, okay, you've got a Nobel Prize. You're probably, I'm going to assume you're correct. <laughs> it sounds like you work for my goal spy because we get all of these all the time. Well, you didn't mean, what does this mean? Yeah. And now I'm, I'm literally feel like I'm walking on eggshells. I'm going to assume you guys don't have Nobel Prize winners in your audience. Um, There's not yet. <laughs> The variance within your shot pattern is what is going to create those angles. I understand that certain angles can be better than other ones. It's just that you can't chase them profitably. And that is just on I mean, literally in any situation. And again, the no laying up guys were giving me a hard time a couple of years ago. Like, you know, there's definitely spots where it's better to be 180 than a hundred. I'm like, Oh, go put the pin anywhere you want and put my ball anywhere you wanted a hundred and go get Zach Blair and put him anywhere you want at 180. And you just figure out how much money you can bring. And I will take every <laughs> single bet you can feel. Yeah. And shockingly, they didn't take that bet. Cause Zach was probably like, guys, that's a bad idea. <laughs> it reminds me of the TLC song, right? Don't go chasing waterfalls. Waterfalls are like angles. Stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to. That's what will work. Oh my but, God. <laughs> once every show. <laughs> Yeah, oh, it, they're it, so good. Do we have to get a, a TLC reference in every show or what? No, just it's some just random sort of analogy. analogy or yeah, metaphor it just, that, that makes, always makes so much sense. It just but works. I would have never thought of it myself. It's, most people don't. All right, what are the top two <laughs> or three besides you know chasing angles? And I was texting with Lou earlier this week. Cause there's a gentleman that was thinking that we should walk the course backwards. You know, gain the nuance and insight on on how to play it from the green back to the tee and. And I claimed that was just, you know, walking the course backwards is backwards thinking. Um, what are the one or two things that, that you think most golfers would commonly hear that are the most destructive pieces of advice that have gotten passed down? Probably laying up to your numbers, a really bad one. Closer is always better. Um, again, within reason, I hate making definitive statements because there's always a, a I gotcha. And it's funny, the lengths people will go to to find a gotcha on any definitive statement I make. So this is with a grain of salt laying up to your number, number 15 at Innisbrook from a couple of years ago, it's 195 yard par three wind was about 10 miles an hour off the left. So every single shot's hit off of a flat piece of ground off of a tee. And the shot pattern was 50 yards wide and 50 yards deep. So let's pretend you're 300 yards. You like it at hundred yards instead of 60 well, if you try to lay up to 100, you don't get to just place it at 100 because that was your intention. Based on the tour's shot pattern depth on a par three of 50 yards, that means you're going to lay it up somewhere between 75 and 125 probably. Shocker, you're not going to get the number you want anyways. And the real key to all of this is if you go back to Zalatoris, number three in the final round of the Masters, 
He ships driver up there about 35 yards short of the green. And I'll agree. He did not hit a very good pitch shot. He got, you know, I've talked about it after he's like, yeah, it's kind of a tight lie. You definitely don't want it coming back to your feet. I just kind of goosed it a little bit Had about 25 feet coming back down the hill. It was a bad shot from 35 yards. Go back to 90 yards where the next group was Justin Rose and Hideki. And they both airmailed the green. A bad shot from 35 yards is typically better than a good shot from 90 yards. And so it's this hurdle you've got to get over of, yeah, I just don't like that shot or I didn't hit a good one. And again, you have to think of the entire range of outcomes. You, it, it's, this is why golf really is just a giant poker game. You, 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 I know what card you want the dealer to turn over on the turn, but there's so much of a range of potential outcomes. You just have to understand that getting it closer is going to be better long-term I really don't care who you are unless you've got like the chipping yips. I mean, and even still, it's just get your power out. (laughs) Well, but again, critically is a lot of times, like with angles or like with a shot like this, where people are trying to find a situation where they're trying to apply like game theory, which is, you know, it's not advanced math, but it's just a, a bit of logic. And there are times where maybe overriding decade would be correct. But if you're out there spending your entire day looking for these little spots, we're going to make five mistakes for every one time you get it right for a net loss. And and as Stuart Sink said, I mean, he bought the Decade app out of the App Store the week before he won last year in Napa. And then after he won in in Hilton Head earlier this year, a few months ago, they had him on PGA Tour Radio the day after I was on. And they were asking him about Decade. And he was like, you know, it just takes so much off my mind. It basically makes the decisions for us. It's, it makes me, I'm fresh. It keeps me energized. I'm not thinking all day long. Again, it's, it's the most cliche, you know, sports psychology thing ever, but presence is what wins. You just have to remain present and out of all of these mental gymnastics, because ultimately it is just exhausting to be running these calculations in your head all day long especially since half the time you don't even know what the hell you're doing anyway. You're <laughs> right, just making right, stuff up. Right. And again, it's a macro thing because you might be right on that one. I may lay up to 82 yards and stuff it to four feet and make the putt and decades wrong. And it's like, no, if we put you in that scenario, right, 100 times at 40 yards and 100 times at 80 yards, which one's going to win out over time, right? And I think people get so fixated on – the one example that may or may not jive with the rest of the thinking that they somehow use that as the holy grail of oh but it comes comes down to it comes down to how far do you hit a driver oh i hit one that rolled downwind downhill and it went 300 yards well now that's my new driver distance <laughs> i hit it 300 yards but actually on average you hit it 260 it's the kind of same analogy well if you put me 60 yards in the fairway I will play anyone on this planet literally for any amount of money they can scrape together because I've got this shot where it's a, I use a putter grip. I can take this thing back as far as I can without letting my hands feel like they set. And it literally goes 60 yards every single time. It's spooky. Um, I did it on George Bryan's YouTube channel one time. He's like, got any tips for a shot from 60? I'm like, that's actually really funny. And I hit it to a foot. It's spooky. But if I'm trying to lay up to 60, I'm probably going to lay up to somewhere between, I don't know, 45 to to 75 probably yeah yeah, so that's now a range that i'm not going to do as good from 50 to 90 yards or 50 to 80 yards whatever the actual math is as i would from 20 to 50 so getting it up there closer yeah i'm I'm never going to have my money shot but i'm going to do a lot better from that range of outcomes versus the range of outcomes that includes the 60 yard shot i love it 
right. I think this has been very informative. All of our readers are super engaged. Renata's going to try to shut us out. Tony has four more questions <laughs> you'd like to ask. Remind us quickly before we go, uh, we can get the Decade Golf app on uh, the Apple Store and the Google Play Store. Am I correct? Yep. Wherever you buy apps, obviously you can do that. You can go to birdiefire.com or playinglesson.com. I mean, at this point, luckily for me, if you just stick Decade in anywhere, you're going to pretty much find us and figure it out. So I, uh, okay. it's been it's been a lot of fun, honestly. It really has. I know I catch a lot of grief on Twitter, but... <laughs> Apparently changing how people see things, long held beliefs is really hard. So I like to think I'm not the, uh, the asshole that I play on Twitter. <laughs> that's probably most people. Well, that's, that may be the best barometer. It's like if you go online and you can't find decade, you're probably not smart enough to use it. You know? like, <laughs> and on that note, we uh, out. That's it. <laughs> Scott, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. This is great. Absolutely. Thank you. 